Once upon a time, in a land far away. I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. We are super excited for a very timely episode. Hopefully timely. Hopefully timely. The craze will be over by the time this gets posted. <laughs> Fads fade fast these days, man. You got to jump on it. So we had a listener write in and ask us if we were going to be doing Thousand and One Nights every single month and since we had called this a year-long project, they were wondering if it was going to be, like, just the Thousand One Nights all year or if there was going to be other stuff, too. So just to clarify, this is going to be kind of like what we did with um, Beauty and the Beast, where it wasn't every single episode focusing on, like, an animal groom, but it was just kind of sporadic. So kind of right now, we're planning on having about one Thousand One Night episode a month, and then... On the off weeks, we'll be talking about tons of other fun stuff. So this episode is not a Thousand and One Nights episode. This one is going to be about the sea shanty craze. Whoop, whoop. So right now, pretty much everywhere in the U.S., and I think in Europe also, I don't know about all over the world, but there's a TikTok sea shanty craze so-called that's it's being called a sea shanty craze we'll get into why that's kind of like a misnomer though in a second (laughs) yeah i mean i know i've been seeing these like sea shanties going crazy and tons of people talking about it and it's really interesting too like the people that are analyzing it and talking about it in their own kind of specific niche like i watched a video by a guy on youtube his name's adam neely and he is all about music So this was very applicable to him, but he was talking about like the musical structure and construction of a sea shanty and explaining why he thinks they're so like TikTokable. And he was saying just like the way TikTok works, it's really good to have, there's kind of like a call and response thing to go with a sea shanty. You have one person calling and then people respond. So if you're like duetting or doing something with someone on TikTok, it's helpful for them to be the one to start. And then you can know when you need to come in. So it's like that's part of the reason why he theorizes that it might be taking off so big is because it's like perfect for kind of the mechanics of how TikTok as an app actually works, which is, I think, a fascinating and interesting take. So you might want to check out that uh, video by Adam Neely if you're into this whole sea shanty thing. Yeah, we're going to actually be having a lot of references to other things that you can look at. So if you are interested, like. Write stuff down. (laughs) Get out a pen and paper. Take notes. Don't stop the episode. Wait until after you're done listening to us, and then you can go and continue your exploration. So, I really like that theory as to like why TikTok is kind of like the perfect vehicle for sea shanties. And what is super fascinating to me, I mean, for the longest time, I'm I'm super into memes. I don't know how many people who listen to the podcast know this, but I was actually, this podcast started out as a blog, 
like six years ago where I was just rewriting fairy tales using like memes. And I thought it was really funny to use memes because memes are folklore. (laughs) And so it's this funny meta like joke. And it was really cool watching the sea shanties kind of take off because like TikTok is absolutely known for creating folklore content. I know like a lot of people don't don't think of it as folklore content. <laughs> That's not what people on TikTok are thinking is they're like, oh, I'm creating some folklore content today. <laughs> These like Gen Zers who are like, oh, it's dance time. Because the thing that makes folklore folklore is the way that it is like passed slowly, like from person to person, from one person straight directly like to another person. And it's interesting because in TikTok, it's recorded. And so like I can see like Nathan Evans. He's one of the biggest names right now for the Weller Man. So I can watch like Nathan Evans the same way everybody else can watch like a recorded Nathan Evans. But I actually wasn't exposed to the Weller Man first by Nathan Evans. The first time I saw a video, it was like after seven more people (laughs) had like piled onto it. Because the other thing that you have to have in folklore is variation in the content. So when it starts to change, because as it's passing hands, it, it starts to warp and change. And so you end up with these like different variants of it, but kind of under like the same structure. So this one, it's like, there was the Weller man, but then there were a bunch of different variations on the song, the Weller man. And so what's interesting and just so incredible So the Weller Man was this 19th century sea shanty. And for all intents and purposes, it was it wasn't a living folk song anymore until you had people like the Longest Johns who Mm. go to their YouTube. They have a ton of folk song content and they redid the Weller Man at the end of 2020 And so, you know, they were singing a version of it. But then when other people like took it, TikToked it, added stuff onto it, now you've got all these varieties and it like woke it back up. It like woke this like folk song (laughs) back up and changed it into something for today. I mean, there's like an EDM version of (laughs) the Weller Man. And it's like, what? why is this what happening? Is happening? <laughs> and it's incredible because, yeah, it started off as like a wailing uh, folk song um, from New Zealand. And oh, really? <laughs> yes. So I'm like, yeah, we, we can get into it. So the, the Weller Man is actually an old shanty uh, from... New Zealand. So the whaling industry, it brought a lot of people close to New Zealand and other islands out in the Pacific and Australia to the to look for more whales. Yeah. A lot of American-based crews were looking for new areas to <laughs> exploit. <laughs> Um, they had been whaling like in the Atlantic for a long time. And so they were 
you know, looking in the Pacific for more whales because of the oil in the whales and also their bones. Both of those whale bones and whale oil were used in a lot of industries. And so there was money to be made. So the Weller brothers established a whaling station and the Weller brothers were in Sydney, Australia. And so they set up a base in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And so a Weller man was a person who worked for the Weller company and would bring supplies to people who were out on the whaling ships. Oh, wow. Mostly they would bring sugar and tea. (laughs) And And rum. rum. (laughs) Uh, Which were, you know, some of the, the rations. So... I was trying to think of how we wanted to talk about the sea shanty craze, like inside of the podcast, because I've actually for a while wanted to cover folk songs, but we don't really sing a lot on this podcast. (laughs) Um, And so I was kind of like, okay, that's like something to like put on the back burner. But with the new sea shanty craze going on right now, we were like, okay, this is kind of timely. So think we want to talk about what a sea shanty is and what a sea shanty isn't because <laughs> I've heard a lot of different people who are kind of writing and speaking on this subject now that it's kind of like in the forefront of everyone's mind yeah. mentioning that the Wellerman is not technically a sea shanty so there are several different like spellings for the word shanty and also the etymology of the word is unknown because for a long time shanties weren't written down or recorded or even cared about because of um sometimes the content of what sailors would sing about (laughs) (laughs) wow this is crass and vulgar let's not record this for all time and eternity in a written form and it's it's really fascinating to me because shanties weren't written down for a long time because of like kind of common problems that folklorists run into when they are trying to look at a group's narrative songs creations. Because one thing about sea shanties and songs of the sea is that they were usually sung on boats where <laughs> folklorists were not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of stuff didn't get like written down and recorded. And so there are a couple different ideas of where the word shanty comes from. So one of the ideas that has been put forward, but often actually gets poo-pooed by sailors, is that the word comes from the French for singing, chante. So... They're like, oh, chante, shanty, to sing. It's the French word. And sailors are like, no. (laughs) Gotta admit, though, it sounds pretty darn close. It does, except that the people who were singing the most sea shanties were not huge fans of the French. (laughs) (laughs) And so it it seems odd that... They reuse the French word when they don't like French people. Exactly. 
In the Shanty book that's by Richard Terry. Um, and Richard Terry, he was a sailor in, I think, like the 1890s. And he wrote a book in 1920, the Shanty book. And at the beginning, he talks a little bit about the origins of the word. And so he says, after hearing the theory that it's French, he wrote, if I wished to advance another theory more plausible still and equally unconvincing, <laughs> I might urge that the word was derived from the Negro hut removals already mentioned. Here, at least, we have a very ancient custom which would be familiar to British seamen visiting West Indian seaports. The object moved in that case, was a shanty. The music accompanying the operation was called, by the Negroes, a shanty tune. Its musical form, solo and chorus, was identical with the sailor shanty. The pulls on the rope followed the same method which obtained at sea. The soloist was called a shantyman. Like the shantyman at sea, he did not work, but merely extemporized verses to which the workers at the ropes supplied the chorus. And finally, the Negroes still pronounced the word itself exactly as the seamen did. Yeah, that does seem a <laughs> lot more plausible. So I've, I've read that there is a really, really close tie between shanties as work songs, the like field songs that were sung by the enslaved African people in the Americas. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of seems like the idea and the formula for shanties might have originated from West Africa. Yeah. And so it makes sense what this guy in 1920 is saying here. His theory is, mm-hmm. is that these songs were when there was heavy work being done by West African groups they would sing shanty songs and they had a shanty man who was the one calling out and like the workers who were pulling on the ropes, you know, were singing along with them. So I'm like, it, it seems likely to me that sea shanties originated as work songs with the African people, which then people usually ask, well, how old are these sea shanties? Like how old are these songs? And like a lot of things that don't get written down, it's really hard to tell when something started and like where it originated from, which is why you do look at like the structure of the song and where these same structures of songs are found in like other places. And it is, you know, in West Africa, in the fields in America. Later, it shows up in different um, industrial places, in mines, on the railroads, basically anywhere where there is manual labor, these songs like started to crop up. Yeah. And it seems like specifically like coordinated manual labor, because like from stuff that I've learned recently, too, is like, you know, they're pulling on a rope, like you need everyone to pull at once. So when you need the timing to be yeah. Right. That's why you have like the rhythm and the beat that's repeatable that everyone can then go. And it was interesting. Again, the Adam Neely video I talk I mentioned talks about like there are specific sounds that are commonly like the first part of like the chorus when everyone else joins in because it's sounds that kind of like engage your core and like tense your core muscles that can be helpful while you're trying to pull on a rope or lift something heavy or do something like that. 
So it's just funny how like the form of these songs is so dictated by the function that it was serving, which you don't really think of songs as serving much of a function other than, oh, being nice to listen to or providing like atmosphere. But it's like, no, is providing the function of doing hard manual labor. Yeah, that it was like these men were trying to all do something at the same time coordinated and also, yeah, needing to <laughs> like heave and hoe and <laughs> it made sense that the function of those songs, the shanties was to like both time the effort of what they were doing and kind of like help boost morale as well. And that's why a lot of the songs, they're either, they're a little funny. They're like, <laughs> they're, they're upbeat or crass or whatever. Cause the songs are being used to keep up morale and serve a function. And yeah, I think that's what you had been saying is like songs don't normally like serve like a function. It's like, yeah, this one, it was important that they had like a function. So there were two types of songs, really, that were sung on ships. You had work songs, which are the shanties. Those are the ones that are are the ones you sing while you're working. And then you also had sea songs, which were songs that would get sung on the boat, but that were for fun. They were like relaxing. The same way Mm -hmm. we talk about how folk tales were told while people were sitting around, like doing their inside household chore, which fun thing to note, there are also weaving songs. Oh, cool. That like exist in, you know, folk songs. So there's weaving songs. Um, So in the same way that you would have uh, people sitting around inside on the cold winter nights, telling tales and singing songs for like enjoyment and pleasure. You also had that on ships where you had all these guys that like now the majority of them had, you know, some downtime on the boat. What could they do? They could sit and sing songs with each other. So not all of the songs that are sung on boats were sea shanties, and not all songs that we hear about the sea were ever sung, like, widely on a boat. Right. (laughs) Because it seems like a lot of the time sailors weren't sitting around singing about the ocean. They would sing about other things as well (laughs) in their spare time. And I have something to back that up in a little bit, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about songs that are sung about the sea. A lot of the songs that people kind of think about as piratey songs, because those have kind of had, they have a popular following People who are like to dress up as pirates and sing piratey songs. <laughs> a lot of those songs were written poems about being pirates or at the sea or whatever by poets who were never sailors. <laughs> yeah. And that also kind of came after the time when even like sea shanties themselves started to like fall out of disuse. Sea right. It's kind of like romanticizing the past and like professions that they found to be like interesting that were so far removed from themselves, like kind of like exotic or whatever. Exactly. Because it's like you get songs like the ballad of John Silver, which sound 
you know, very piratey, very exciting, but was based off of a poem by definitely not a man who was a pirate. He was like a <laughs> British poet laureate. <laughs> Which I'm not saying that poet laureates can't be pirates, but I am. So, that's funny. Or even there's one song which I'm like, oh, that sounds really piratey, and it's called the Derelic. It's it's also called Fifteen Men on a Dead Man's Chest. Uh huh. And that song was written based off of like a poet being inspired. After he had read the story by Robert Louis Stevenson of Treasure Island. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like the song sounds very like piratey and exciting, but then it's also written off of like a literary reference. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a little bit from the Ballad of John Silver. We were schooner-rigged and rakish with a long and linsome hull, and we flew the pretty colors of the crossbones and the skull. We'd a big black jolly roger flapping grimly at the fore, and we sailed the Spanish water in the happy days of yore. So, like, as you can see, just, like, this very idyllic, like... Yeah. Like, oh, long ago, those were such happy days when we were pirates. <laughs> We'd a long brass gun amidship like a well-conducted ship. We had each a brace of pistols and a cutlass at the hip. It's a point which tells against us and a fact to be deplored, but we chased the goodly merchantmen and laid their ships aboard. (laughs) Then the dead men fouled the scuppers and the wounded filled the chains and the paintwork all was splatterdashed with other people's brains. Oh my gosh. (laughs) She was boarded, she was looted, she was scuttled till she sank, and the pale survivors left us by the medium of the plank. And then one of my favorite lines is, like, at the end, all the pigtailed quibbing pirates and the pretty pranks we played all have since been put a stop to by the naughty board of trade. (laughs) (laughs) Did it say the pirates had pigtails? It did, yeah, all the pigtailed quibbing pirates and the pretty (laughs) pranks we played. Sounds so lovely. Yeah, it's like by John Macefield. <laughs> oh, man. Um, that is some pretty classic stuff. And so I'm like, it's a it's a fun song, you know, that you can really get down to. <laughs> and it's not it's not it's not even like it's you can find songs of that on YouTube. Um, if you look for the ball- a ballad of John Silver, you can find mm-hmm. music. And it's fun because it's like all, you know. The tunes are all piratey and fun, and it's awesome. But again, not sung by pirates, not sung probably ever on a boat. (laughs) And not written or sung with any actual knowledge of what it's like to be a pirate or to be on a boat. So here are a few definitions for what a shanty is. So one of them is really short, where it's just shanties were labor songs sung by sailors of the merchant service only while at work and never by way of recreation. And that is from the shanty book that I talked about by Richard Terry that was written in 1920. More recently, in a book called Boxing the Compass, a century and a half of discourse about sailors shanties. The author, Gib Schreffler, 
He said, shanties are always call and response songs. They always have a leader and a chorus. The chorus is performed by all of the crew aside from the leader, and the leader performs as a soloist. And what this means is that the chorus is a fixed part of the song. All the crew must know that part of the song so that they can come in and sing it together. However, what the leader or the caller sings is completely optional to his whim and therefore is typically improvised. And one shanty that I really like that follows this, which is a classic shanty that um, I think a lot of people will know, is Leave Her Johnny. Mm, Yes. So this is a shanty. And it was typically a pumping song. So pumping songs would be used while pumping the ship dry, which is when you are pumping the water that is accumulated in the the bilges of a nautical vessel. You're trying, so it's at the bottom, but you're trying to pull it just out. It's just water that accumulates inside of the boat, basically. Mm -hmm. And to pump that out, you use an Archimedes screw, which is, there's a tube, and down the center of the tube is like a screw shape. And if it's tilted on its side slightly, as it turns it collects water or grain or whatever you've stuck the Archimedes yeah. screw in. But what it does is, is it allows you through that motion to pull things up from the bottom and move mm-hmm. them up out of the ship. So they, yeah. they were walking around in a circle basically to turn this screw. And so this was usually one of the last things that they were doing before they could all kind of get off of the ship when they'd finally docked. So as these men were just moving all together, trying to like, you know, keep pace with each other and also trying to just get this like work over and done with, they were singing this song, leave her Johnny, leave her. And in each verse of the song, they kind of are talking about basically what sucked about being on the boat (laughs) the whole time that they were on the boat, which is hilarious (laughs) to think about that. That's what they're doing. But it's also funny to me because the song sounds like a little bit sad, like they're a little bit sad to leave to me, just like thinking from a folklorist perspective of like, Oh, why was this like song sounding like a little sad when you have a crew of people who've been working really hard, long hours together, you form this like little community. And even though the Mm -hmm. work that you're doing is like hard and sometimes miserable, all the people that you did that with, you've kind of like grown attached to those people that like you're working with. So it's a little sad to leave, but also they were excited to leave. Yeah. Because the her in question of leave her, Johnny Lever is the boat. Yes. Yes. Like let's get off of this thing and never do this again the longest johns who we mentioned before singing like the weller man they two years ago did a version of leave her johnny and they had asked for submissions because the longest johns they have been a group that have been around for a long time not just like a current sea shanty craze like type thing they've been around and they sing a lot of folk songs they even have like i think they have an album actually of Mm -hmm. like uh, folk and sea songs and so they asked for submissions to sing leave her johnny and they got i think they said they got over like 500 they wanted oh wow they were hoping for a hundred so they could make like a compilation video and so if you look up the longest johns leave her johnny 
there's like it's a, an amazing video just because there's so many people like all together singing this song so i definitely recommend like yeah looking it up and listening to like a few different versions because there are lots of different lyrics that have been written down and recorded because different shanty men who were the like chorus leaders they yeah. would sing their own verses, ones that they mm-hmm. had heard for a long time, ones that were specific to their ship, and sometimes yeah. ones that were specific to the captains that they didn't like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which that's awesome. was like, it was a way to talk back, especially as they're about to get off the ship, to like air all these grievances that they like had. Yeah. So some of the uh, lyrics, I thought I heard the old man say, leave her, Johnny, leave her. And that's the part where everybody would sing it together. And then tomorrow you will get your pay. And then everyone would sing and it's time for us to leave her. And then they'd sing the chorus together. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. Oh, leave her, Johnny, leave her. For the voyage is long and the winds don't blow and it's time for us to leave her. So now the person when they're singing like the the parts where the chorus doesn't come in. Oh, the wind was foul and the sea ran high. She shipped it green and none went by. And then they sing chorus. That one's not as fun as I hate to sail on this rotten tub. No grog (laughs) allowed and rotten grub. (laughs) (laughs) We swear by rote for want of more, but now we're through. So we'll go to shore. (laughs) So basically the shantyman for that song, he just had to come up with like two lines and yeah. they didn't necessarily had to have to rhyme. All of yeah. them did. But yeah, you could make up whatever you want about whatever happened on that trip that you were on, which I'm like, that's so beautiful. That it was kind of like, hey, guys, while we all pump the water out of this boat, let's sing about. Everything that we hated about the trip that we were just yeah. on. No, I love that. <laughs> I also love too because it's kind of like the like inside jokes that they could bring up. Like they could totally be talking about like the sailors, like who's been writing like letters to some girl or something, or like you know whatever may have happened. Like a sailor that pooped his pants. They could sing like a little <laughs> song about that. I don't know, you know. Like I could see him just going around too. Like when you're trying to make it up as you're doing these things over and over, you're gonna want to get creative with it. So like he just like might sing whatever comes to your mind when you like are sitting there looking at stuff. I think it's just funny too. Like I imagine the the shanty man there, like kind of trying to make people laugh by bringing up like inside jokes from their voyage or whatever. You know, like I just love that. Like they're expressing their like shared experience in this song, whether it be good or whether it be complaining about all the stuff that they hate. You know, especially as they're getting ready to get off the boat. So as I was doing my research and trying to figure out like how old you know, shanties were, where they come from, how long they go back. I was discovering that these, the songs themselves, um, that's, it's hard to tell how old some of them are because like we said, a lot of them didn't get written down, but there is one book that contains the oldest collection of some of the oldest known songs sung by sailors and the book was put together by a sailor who accidentally during the time of the revolutionary war became an anthologist. (laughs) Um, And his story is absolutely fascinating. And so even though this story is a true story, I hope that everybody enjoys uh, this for the fairy tellers. (laughs) 
So we've talked a little bit this episode about pirate songs and how pirates didn't really sing these songs. And even though people really enjoy songs sung by pirates. So now I'm going to talk about a man who, for all intents and purposes, was a pirate. (laughs) So Timothy Connor was an American privateer. So a privateer is a fancy name for a legally recognized pirate, (laughs) basically. Yeah. So do basically all the same pirate stuff, but a government was supporting them and saying that it was okay and that they had permission. Exactly. So a privateer was a person who was in a... An armed ship, usually just lightly armed, we're talking like, I don't know, 15 cannons, the 15 gun. They weren't heavily, heavily armed, but they -hmm. were usually armed enough to protect themselves, but they were merchant ships. But when they were not merchant ships, they (laughs) had basically government permission by usually one government. Yeah. One government's per- permission to kind of take out other ships, usually competing merchant ships from yeah. other countries. So in this case, Timothy Connor was an American privateer and they were allowed to attack anybody aiding the British <laughs> because this was happening in the middle of the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. So, before we get into it, privateersmen were actually very, very important in America to the war effort. So, during the Revolutionary War, about 70,000 men in over 4,000 ships of every size and description. Oh my gosh. Yes, were privateersmen. Wow. This is, so, okay, so those numbers that I just said is like 70,000 men in, in the course of the war. 4,000 ships, as opposed to the Continental Navy, which was like the colony's set official Navy. Navy. And I have here inside of this book, it's uh, this is the forward inside a sailor's song bag, which is the the book, The the collection. It says the records reveal the remarkable weight of destruction that the American privateering fleet leveled upon British ships between 1776 and 1783. It was far greater than anything the enfeebled Continental Navy, whose fleet gradually shrank from 32 to seven boats could do. Oh my gosh. I At like boats. a maximum of 32 versus yes. the 4,000 <laughs> of the privateers. Exactly. I'm like, the Continental Navy ended with seven ships. They had started with 32. <laughs> So over a period of eight years of declared warfare with England, American privateers captured 800 British vessels and took over 12,000 prisoners. Wow. So what's really interesting to me that I was reading and researching was that different founding fathers had different views on privateers, different views, but also for the people that they are. Uh, it makes total sense. <laughs> so you had Thomas Jefferson who said that the fleet was a, like, quote, a national blessing. So he was just like, 
he like, okay, just let them do what they want to do. Like, it's totally fine. You know, as big of a problem that they could have with them, they were a blessing to the whole nation and so glad they had them. Okay, so juxtapose that with George Washington. And George Washington, he was very military minded. Yeah, I mean, he was from like a military training. He used to be like a British soldier. Yeah, so to him... And a military leader. Yeah. So to him, like military was like the right way to do things, having this like just very set rules and boundaries and who's in charge and who's not and following orders and behaving. So (laughs) there's a quote from him. He wrote to the president of Congress. He said, the plague, trouble and vexation I have had with crews of all the armed vessels is inexpressible. I do believe there is not on earth a more disorderly set. Every time they come (laughs) into port, we hear nothing but mutinous complaints. (laughs) So he, he like, he- To the tune of Lever Johnny Lever. (laughs) 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 He- Like, George Washington could not stand privateers. He thought that, seriously, they were just, like, gutter trash and rascals. Yeah. He was like, anybody who would choose to be, like, a privateer is just, like, unruly and unmanageable. Could not even deal with them. Benjamin Franklin. I'm going to guess he's (laughs) pro-privateer. Jeff, he was so pro-privateer, he owned three privateering vessels. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Benjamin Franklin. That man deserves every 100 of those dollars that are on that $100 bill with his face. He's like, oh, you definitely should put my face on one of (laughs) of the biggest bills you've got. So Benjamin Franklin maintained that his reason for owning these privateering vessels was not because he made half of everything <laughs> that, that they make. <laughs> they, because the people who owned privateering vessels, they would make about half, like whatever money was like brought in, both merchant-wise and when they would bring like a ship in. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk in a minute why they wanted the ship intact. Yeah. But if you brought a ship back intact, thousands of dollars. Yeah. And the person who owned that privateering vessel, he would make half of whatever they made. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the money was like dispersed like amongst the crew. And there was tons of money to be made. So Benjamin Franklin said that was not the reason why he wanted to own three privateering vessels. He said that it was so that they could capture English prisoners so that they could use the English prisoners to trade for American or colonial uh, prisoners. Mm Yeah. Even though apparently the American privateers weren't super great at capturing people alive. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so I'm like, maybe Benjamin Franklin is being truthful that he was trying to encourage those prisoners because he was spending a lot of time in France trying in France to negotiate the return of prisoners that were being held in England after you know, events at sea that would take them back to England. So maybe that is what Benjamin Franklin was up to. But I just thought it was so funny that basically, like, (laughs) 
some of the three like biggest names in American Revolutionary War history and American history had such like opposing views about like privateers, which again were basically just pirates. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just shocked how often we talk about freaking Benjamin Franklin on this podcast. He comes up constantly. This is a Benjamin Franklin <laughs> podcast. This is this is a podcast that is all about making disparaging remarks about Benjamin Franklin. He was not he's he's not my favorite man of all time. <laughs> a personal side. Pretty much everything I hear about Benjamin Franklin, I'm like, figures. Okay, so back to Timothy Connor. Timothy Connor was a privateer and he was in his mid to late 20s when he was out privateering. So the date is June 15th, 1777. We know because he kept a journal. <laughs> nice. Timothy Connor kept records, and that's why we're talking about him. Like, good for him. So note to everyone out there, if you want to be talked about in hundreds of years, keep records. Yeah, keep records. Otherwise, you will be forgotten to history. Exactly. Unlike Timothy Connor, who we know <laughs> to this day as American privateer. <laughs> and he was on the ship called the Rising States. So the Rising States was... A privateering vessel. So they were doing a lot of merchant work, but then also sailing around looking for other boats. And apparently privateers were getting kind of so emboldened by how well things were going that they were like getting closer and closer to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> and like they're like just waiting outside of like European ports, like, come on, bring it. Yeah, that was like exactly what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where, like, there were countries that were kind of, like, writing to the U.S. being like, can you tell them to back up? Like, <laughs> like we're not we're not messing with you. Like, we like, please behave. So anyway, the rising states, the ship. The name is so fascinating to me. It's such a patriotic name. The rising yeah. states. They were actually right outside of Cape Cod. And they had been trying to get into port, but there was kind of like a storm and they couldn't get in. And so the captain, who was Captain James Thomas, called all hands on deck and he offered them a choice. He said, hey, so we can keep trying to get into Nantucket Harbor or we can turn around and go looking for what he called prizes <laughs> for other ships. So they all decided that they wanted to, yeah, if they couldn't get into port safely right now, they would rather go out looking for a ship to, you know, take control of. So when you were a privateer, there were a lot of incentives given to the crewmen to be very actively engaged in their privateering job. And some of those perks included monetary rewards that were like pretty hefty. So in here I have a quote. So it says, the seaman who first sighted a sail, which later turned out to be a prize, would receive 500 extra dollars. 
Whoa. Yeah, no, listen, there's this money to be made. During the engagement, the first man to set foot aboard a vessel that proved to be a prize gained 1,000 extra dollars, plus oh the best flintlock found on the captured ship. There was compensation as well for those maimed in the engagement. For loss of an arm or leg, a sailor received $4,000. Oh, man. For loss of an eye, 1000 so we actually know what the monetary value of something costing someone an arm and a leg is. Yeah. $8,000. $8,000. And this last part I thought was very sweet. It said, and if a sailor died in action, his share frequently went to his closest relatives. Oh. So when they were on these privateering boats to like incentivize them to be looking for a, a boat to yeah. pop on... $1,000 if they were one that spotted the boat. And then another $1,000 and the best gun like on the ship if they were the first ones to set foot. Which means that like everybody was as quickly as possible. Yeah, they're like, get on there. Yeah, like get on there because they wanted that like that bonus. Yeah. That business bonus. <laughs> it explains the times in like movies when you see like pirates going aboard like another ship where like the people are like swinging out on ropes, but they're like doing it too soon. So they like swing and fall into the water instead. It's like there's a thousand bucks on the line. It was a risk, but it was a calculated risk because they're like, if I did land it, thousand bucks could be mine. Yeah, no. And if you lost a limb while you were fighting, if you survived that, you're even though you probably you know, your career might be a little bit over. Yeah. That's money that'll set you and your family up for a while while you like get settled into like whatever comes next, yeah. like in your life. So like this was a very lucrative position. And yeah. like the the biggest prize to be captured was the boat. Yeah. Boats are very expensive and time consuming to build. Yeah. So if you brought a boat back to your boss, mm -hmm. then like the compensation, the monetary compensation that you could get was incredible. And so obviously, like with all these perks and bonuses, these guys, when their captain came to them and said, OK, we're having problems like getting into port. Do we want to keep trying doing this or do you guys want to like go out and maybe try and get some money? Of course, everybody on the boat's like, yeah, let's go. Like, let's quit wasting yeah. our time trying to, like, angle in while this storm's going on. Like, let's, like, go out and, and see what we can find. Spend a couple more months, like, out there, see what happens. So they went out. Unfortunately for them, the first boat that they came across was a man of warship. I did not know. I've heard the term uh, Portuguese man of war. Because mm -hmm. that's like a name of a jellyfish. Animal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did not realize that man of warships were invented and created by the Portuguese. Yeah. I knew it was a classification of ship, but I actually don't know what it is that makes a ship a man of war. So a man of warship typically has three levels inside of it of guns, of, oh, can of cannons. When, when yeah. we say gunship, we mean like cannons. Cannons. So this ship that they came across, it had 74 guns. Jeez. And, you know, again, they were looking for merchant ships. <laughs> <laughs> they did not want any of that. They did not want 
but usually the thing that like helps is man of warships are heavy. And so presumably they're slow, so you could get away from them. Yes. But unfortunately for the rising states, they weren't able to outrun the HMS Terrible, captained by Richard Rickerton. All of that sounds like made up for a movie. Like, that doesn't sound real. <laughs> the HMS Terrible, chasing the rising states. Yeah, no, this is, I'm like, is this just like Revolutionary War propaganda? <laughs> <laughs> So they were captured. Timothy Connor, our writer, and his captain and the whole crew were taken over by the HMS Terrible. And Connor wrote in his journal, which again, I'm like, who let this guy? He's a prisoner. And he has like a journal that he's like, dear diary. Sometimes we had nothing but gruel and peas without salt, butter, or meat. Only what we begged from some of the sailors. As it happened, there were some of our own countrymen on board, which, uh. oh man, there's like so much drama. Be- so because Americans were not considered prisoners of war, they were considered traitors. Yeah. They got treated worse than if they were prisoners of war. Right. And so it's not super surprising either that when this guy said, hey, there were some of our own countrymen on board this ship that were willing to kind of like give us a little bit extra food while the food was terrible. Because there was a certain amount of people that when they were captured, they would revert back to being English pretty quickly. Yeah, or like kind of pressed into service because they are like British citizens, technically. Exactly. And so they would flip. And we'll talk more about that when we when they get to England. So it was really, really hard on board the ship. But these guys were very lucky because they were being taken back to England. So even though the boat ride to England was horrible, what they had the promise of since they were being brought back to England was an actual physical prison. If prisoners of war privateers were captured closer to the Americas, they would be left on the boat and Mm. they would be kind of like stuck out on this boat because they couldn't escape. And so that's where they house them because it'd be really easy if they were to escape from a prison for them to quickly run and hide and find aid in the United States. And so they were kept on a boat, which was horribly disgusting. And the majority of those prisoners would die. Yeah. So, Timothy Connor was super lucky because he was being shipped to England to a prison that was being built as they were on their way out there. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) he and his fellow privateersmen from the rising states were going to be the first ones that were going to be in Fortin prison. So when they got to Fortin prison, obviously there were three ways that you could get out of this prison situation. You could decide to flip and go back to being British, which it would take a little bit of time if they decided to do that because they would have to get an official pardon to do that. Mm -hmm. And while they were waiting to get an official pardon, if any of the other prisoners would find out, they would not take it well. Yeah. (laughs) And... Uh, There was actually apparently this like memo that got sent out among the prisoners 
A vigilante group comprised of both officers and seamen signed an agreement with threatened 39 stripes or lashes and the removal of one ear to anyone who volunteered for British service. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Which goes, uh, you know, into what we talked about in our last episode. (laughs) Snitches get ear stitches. (laughs) And they would also do that to anybody who stopped people from doing the second thing of that would help them get out, which was anytime they had a jailbreak planned, if somebody snitched on them, same thing. They're like, just know that if you mouth off, you don't have to try to escape with us, but if you mouth off, to the guards and warn them, we're going to beat you. Sometimes to the tune of a hundred lashes, which, yeah. So it very much in the prison was like a big no-no to tattle on other people. So to escape, so about 5% of the people in Fortin prison did end up Switching into British service. So 5% of those ones. 30% were able to escape, which tells you like how fortified this prison was. (laughs) There was actually a local reverend, Reverend Wren, who was written about a lot by Timothy Connor because he was kind of a safe place for the escapees to run to he was harboring these escapees in the church and would get them on their way to france because once they Mm -hmm. were in france they could usually get work on a workship and head out from there the french were like oh you're gonna go back and give the british more hell like more power to you here we'll help you out exactly and so one thing that was funny it said by far the most popular way out was by digging or in the prisoner's parlance, mining for elopement. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm like, what are you guys mining for? Elopement. <laughs> oh, man. And then the third way to get out of Fort in prison was to wait until arrangements were made to switch British prisoners with American prisoners. Which, as we talked a little bit about earlier, was a problem because apparently the Americans weren't super great at taking prisoners. They were great at getting the ship, (laughs) not necessarily having anything to trade after they got hold of the ship. Oh, man. So, yeah, it it was kind of a long wait, not to mention that... General Washington was not super eager to get the privateersmen back. Mm-hmm. So when the British were like, oh, if you send us some of our soldiers back, we'll send you these privateersmen. General Washington was like, no, nah, you can have them. <laughs> it's like, they're, I think they're useless. So <laughs> I'm not going to give you trained sailors in exchange for these, like, ruffians and scoundrels. Exactly. And so Benjamin Franklin actually was doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to trying to get <laughs> those prisoners back. And so, yeah, uh, when he says, like, oh, I didn't own three privateering vessels because I wanted the money. It was so that we could get more prisoners. I'm like, it, that might be true, because he was the one who was stationed out in France and was trying to, like, yeah. negotiate 
So maybe I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but probably not. So Timothy Connor in his journal, he wrote several times about being in high spirits because he was hearing from Reverend Wren that, you know, a, a, an exchange was just like days away from happening that, you know, it was it was very close to there being like a, a, a switch. And Timothy Connor and a lot of the other prisoners, they were getting most of their information from Reverend Wren. Mm-hmm. about what was going on like in the war and it was really really hard for them to know if america was winning if there were problems it was really hard to kind of keep their spirits up and not kind of get bored and anxious and upset and um like kind of give up hope yeah so they kind of had a lot of I have a quote that says, to allay such nerve-grinding anxiety, the men turn to an assortment of endeavors and amusements. Those with a talent for whittling or carpentry produce knickknacks to sell at the prison gate. Frenchmen taught some Americans the French language. Illiterates learned to read. A handful of enterprising seamen studied navigation under the tutelage of officers, and for some, this pursuit was pivotal to their later lives. Men who might otherwise have languished in menial occupations rose to become respected shipmasters after leaving prison. And so oh, wow. even while they were sitting in like this fort in prison, they all were kind of trying to come up with things to keep them busy and occupied. Yeah. Because uh, Timothy Connor actually, he ended up, being in this prison for two years. Gosh. And so in that two year time, he, as his kind of like mind saving pursuit, decided to collect songs. And he wrote them down with like, he dated them as he like wrote Mm -hmm. them down. So we know like which ones he wrote first and like which ones he collected last. Wow. That's so cool. So in a sailor song bag, it says, clearly a rich singing tradition prospered during the revolution. And if we can hold up Timothy Connor's songbook as a random sampling of what was sung in Fort and Prison, it is evident that prisoners did not just voice patriotic lyrics. They sang about a variety of things, about drinking and love, about forsaken women, about sex, violence, and life at sea, to name a few. And so he was like compiling these songs and it again it's one of the earliest collections we have of songs that were recorded by a sailor yeah it's hard to know from his compilation whether these were songs that were sung at sea yeah or just yeah songs that these sailors happen to know exactly um it says connor probably compiled his songbook for the same reason he kept a journal to fill up his time. How he acquired the songs that fill the pages of his book is only conjecture. In certain entries, the spelling is so varied and at times phonetic as to suggest an oral recitation of some sort or else a noting down of a song from memory. And then some of the songs are recorded like very clearly and accurately. And so the person who is putting these together, who I haven't told you guys his name yet in 1976 so almost 200 years after these were written down george Mm -hmm. gibson carey was putting all this together all the songs together and also kind of looking into the history of these 
So George Gibson Carey, he edited the songbook with notes for each song. He was a member of the English department at the University of Massachusetts and is a specialist in American folklore. And so he was kind of given these songs to look at and see what he could like put together. And so he went to England and was looking at what are called broadside slips and looking at ballads and songs that were written on the back of these broadsides to see if they corresponded with um, some of the songs that were inside this book. And some of them did have equivalents to the broadsides, but some of the wording was changed. Like if one of the songs ended and God save the king or may, or may the king be saved, something like that, he would take out that line and like put yeah. <laughs> anything else in that was not, um, you know, pro-British <laughs> monarchy. Yeah. Another thing that points to these songs possibly being sung and known among sailors was that because these songs were dated by Timothy Connor, mm-hmm. George Gibson Carey was able to look at Fortin Prison's old like manifest, and he found that every time there was a new shipment (laughs) (laughs) of prisoners suddenly there would be like uh 15 entries or four new entries or five new entries all at once and so george carey doesn't know whether that's because the prisoners were coming in with broad slips with like these papers on them or that they were bringing in their own songs or whatever it was yeah every time a new group of these prisoners would come in Suddenly, Timothy Connor would, you know, add more and multiple entries to his book. And in the book, it says, Towards obscene material, Timothy Connor, reflecting his era, appears ambivalent. But William Cutter, the man who sent the manuscripts of all of this to the Library of Congress in 1893, certainly was not ambivalent towards the obscene material a quote (laughs) collection of coarse sailor songs he commented in a somewhat fussy victorian categorization (laughs) so perhaps cutter never got beyond the first song for here to be sure one pledges headlong into an unbolderized account of a rake who contracts venereal disease from a local prostitute, swears he will serve his village in like manner and proceeds to do so. Because <laughs> in, this, in this collection, the very first song that Timothy Connor was like, you know what, I should write down <laughs> this, this very important song. But yeah, I, I love that in 1893... William Cutter was like, these are disgusting. And he basically just sent the manuscript of all of these songs just into the Library of Congress. And he was like, here, mm-hmm. I don't want this. It's garbage. Which it's like, no, it's not. But it is funny because it is like when George was like, perhaps Cutter never got beyond the first song. <laughs> for here, for sure. Yes, he is correct. It, it, it is a collection of course sailor songs, but not all of them are. So of the 57 songs that Timothy Connor wrote down, they cover a wide variety of topics. Some of them are like very patriotic towards America. Some of them are 
rudely humorous, and some of them are about love. He labeled a lot of songs just simply a love song, which Mm. it's noted that it is a very loose term. It basically was labeled a love song if there was any like male and female relationship in it. It says, women become deceivers in songs 28 and 130, but so do men in songs 26 and 32. While women in two songs decry the miseries of celibacy, men in three others praise bachelorhood and recommend married women as best partners. (laughs) There's song number 16 is called The Cuckolded Tailor, and it is about a man who is a tailor and a sailor comes in and seduces his wife. Uh, and it's like, Oh, of course a sailor came in and seduced his wife and then left. Cause these are songs being written by sailors For sailors. It says, but not all the love songs express infidelity. A good number champion, true and undying devotion, particularly those which destroy describe a lover's departure in certain instances the woman in the song refuses to accept a lover's absence and follows him to sea or to war so i thought that was really interesting that like of what these men were singing about and possibly singing on like ships it was like Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes they were singing about like war or patriotism to their country or they were singing about love and like people that they missed and wish could be like with them like on their ship and even songs that fantasized about like a woman leaving home and like coming onto the ship to be with them yeah and then there were also you know raunchy like humor (laughs) songs that were being employed and used i wanted to go to song 16 that was talking about the cuckolded taylor so i can like read The poor cuckold tailor. And Falmouth lived a merchant tailor. His wife was beautiful and young, and she was courted by Will the sailor, who gained her love by his flattering tongue. He hugged, squeezed her, he kissed, he pleased her. Tis, O kind sir, pray let me go, for I would not be willing for forty shillings that my kind husband, the shame, should know. He gave her three of the finest laces that ever beautiful women wore, and she received them with kind embraces. What could a tailor desire more? I'm sorry. The times when I pause, it is because he was writing these phonetically. Not He's not spelling them. Mm, Gosh, Timothy Connor, go to school. (laughs) One day he to the tavern took her thinking the tailor was out of town. But a lurking suitor came there to look her, and through the keyhole he spied her down. There he stood peeping, sighing, weeping, to see the sailor serve her so. Oh, cruel sailor, to wrong a tailor, how could you serve your poor landlord so? There he stood peeping, sighing, sobbing, to see the sailor serve him so. Gaudzooks, I'll venture the room to enter if you don't quickly let her go. Oh, kind sir, your wife in a fit was taken. Most dreadfully, she seemed to frown. Twas a pain to cro- across her belly, and I was forced for to hold her down. <laughs> oh, see how a man may be mistaken. I would have sworn you had cuckolded me. But all jealous thoughts, they shall be forsaken. 
Great stores of liquor I'll call for thee. Here's a health <laughs> to my wife, Mary, for she is a virtuous wife, I know. And here is another to will the sailor, and we'll be merry before we go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm just, like, imagining these, like, sailors singing a song about, you know, going into port and... I didn't mean that euphemistically. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with some guy's like wife, and they all think of that's like hilarious. So it's like, of course, there'd be, you know, some of that like rough humor on the boat. What's interesting to note in what Timothy Connor collected is that most of the songs are not specifically about the sea. So we kind of like in our present day, we tend to think of sailors just singing songs about the sea and the ocean. And those are the ones that kind of get taken up and people who are singing in like any kind of like pirate themed festival or something. They're always mm -hmm. songs that are like about the ocean. But if like Timothy Connors collection is like any indication, they weren't mostly singing about the sea. There was a lot of different things that were being sung on boats. And in the time that Timothy Connor was writing in this collection, there are no sea shanties because he was writing it in 1777. And a lot of people don't think that the sea shanty was around until around the 1830s on some ships, probably before then on some later, but it's like around the 1830s was when mm. these songs started to be sung. And in the shanty book. Okay. So it says shanties were labor songs sung by sailors of the merchant service only while at work and never by way of recreation. Moreover, at least in the 19th century, they were never used aboard men of war ships where all orders were carried out in silence to the pipe of the bosun's whistle. And so when people were on, you know, military vessels, probably no singing was going on, but they had used like a whistle, an instrument mm -hmm. to kind of time them all. And I know that right. on other boats, drums were often yeah. used. So it wasn't necessarily singing, but there was a sound that they could all kind of like time their beat to. And it said, before the days of factories and machinery, all forms of work were literally manual labor. And all the world over, the laborers, obeying a primitive instinct, sang at his toil, the harvester with his sickle, the weaver at the loom, the spinner at the wheel. Long after machinery had driven the labor song from the land, it survived at sea in the form of shanties, since all work aboard a sailing vessel was performed by hand. The advent of screw steamers sounded the death keel of the shanty. Aboard the steamer, there were practically no sails to be manipulated. The donkey engine and steam wince supplanted the hand-worked windlass and capstan. By the end of the 70s, that's the 1870s, steam had driven the sailing ship from the seas. A number of sailing vessels lingered on through the 80s, but they retained little of the corporate pride and splendor that was once theirs. The old spirit was gone never to return. And so sea shanties actually existed in a very, very short span of time. Yeah. From around the early, like, 18... 20s let's say to like 1880 and so it's yeah. just this very short span of time where sea shanties were actually being sung 
And so a lot of the songs that we like hear today, one, probably aren't shanties, not necessarily work songs. And then a lot of them probably were never sung on a boat. Yeah. And one thing that I do find interesting that made it hard for these songs to be collected is that because they're being sung by just rough sailors, ordinary people, they were considered kind of trash and not something that was like valuable that like needed to be collected. Mm-hmm. And we see that happen over and over again yeah. with like tales. Cause you know, we have that with like fairy tales where it was like, Oh yeah, these weren't written down because like who wants to write, write these like dumb folk tales down. And it was the same with thousand and one nights where they were like, Oh, well we didn't need to write those down. Cause those are just like kind of our trashy gutter, raunchy stories. Why would we want to write those down? And it was the same with these sea shanties. So I have one last quote that I want to read from a sailor's song bag. And it says, in a sense, all the songs in the Connor manuscript, if they were sung, might be viewed as providing a kind of release from the boredom of everyday life. And that hit me so hard because George Carey, he was a folklorist. He studied American folklore. And one of the main Mm. jobs of like folklorists is to not just look at like what has been created by the folk, by like the common people, what stuff is being circulated and carried forward, but also to mm. ask the question of like, why? Why was this circulating? Why was it so important? And so when he says that he's like, all of these songs kind of, you know, act as a release for boredom of like everyday life. And it's so interesting to me because right now during the sea shanty craze, we have a lot of folklorists and just people in general writing articles about like, why? Why is the sea shanty craze happening? Why now? Yeah, Yeah, like, why is this going on? Like, why is this happening? Which, of course, is a very important thing to look at. Because, like I said, kind of at the beginning of the episode, TikTok has enabled this Weller Man song and a couple other old sea shanties or even just sea songs Mm -hmm. to go from these, like, old dead folk songs to being revived and alive and you're seeing them pass around and see variation and folklorists are asking like why why are they suddenly like alive because if the folk are all doing something it means there is something going on that is causing this to happen or else ordinary people by you know the millions wouldn't be obsessing over this or passing it on or or cre- yeah. even riffing off of it yeah and what i've seen over and over again is them saying people are bored. People need some happiness in their life right now. Like everybody is stuck at home or has been going through a lot of really difficult, like stressful times. Let them enjoy the Weller man. Let them make, you know, EDM versions (laughs) of, of folk songs. And like the reason why this is happening is because People are bored and they need a release. They need some like joy and happiness in their life. And it's so fascinating to me that one of the ways that people are, you know, creating happiness in in their life is resurrecting (laughs) these like old songs, these like old folk songs. But like, it's just perfect for this time.
Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inge for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar. So the semen, we're going to be talking a lot about semen in this episode, Jeff. Yes. I meant to say that at the beginning.